Really appreciative for the chambers for reading our uh, scriptures today from 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It's probably a passage you know, you've heard read, you've had perhaps read at a wedding service that you've been part of, but is a wonderful chapter nevertheless. Let's not grow tired or weary. Essentially, it says love is the greatest thing in the world. Spotify has just released its subscription figures from uh, the last month under lockdown to say that music subscriptions have steeply risen uh, throughout these past weeks. Uh, as I've been thinking about that and listening to music myself, it's, it's so often the case that love is a central part of music, of lyrics. The amount of songs that focus on love, unrequited love, broken love, but essentially love, are massive. So purely for research purposes only, I found the best-selling love songs of all time and wonder if they're on your playlist or have you listened to them recently. I repeat, this is purely for research purposes only and doesn't necessarily reflect what I listen to whilst I'm making supper at home. So at five, and these are to do with the UK and they are to do with sale volumes before I get emails saying you've looked elsewhere or know differently. So at five is the song I Will Always Love You by Whitney Houston in 2002 with 1.66 million sales. I had thought I might ask Phil to come and sing a little rendition of them, but um, I thought I won't make you suffer. At four is Anything Is Possible Evergreen by Will Young in 2001 with 1.79 million sales. How are you doing? What do you think is at number three? Everything I do, I do it for you. Brian Adams uh, went along with the song uh, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. It was 16 weeks at number one in 1991 with 1.86 uh, million sales. At number two, I feel I should do the voice of the charts here. At two is Unchained Melody, Robson and Jerome, 1995. Do you remember it? 1.89 million sales. And top of the charts, pick of the pops, Love is All Around by Wet, Wet, Wet. 1994, 1.9 million sales. 15 weeks at number one, connected with that film, Four Weddings and a Funeral. It's interesting that out of those top five, three of them are from films. And I just think it points to the power of love, especially when it's told and linked to story, to narrative. Little wonder then, that at the heart of the gospel, the Christian story, and we'll be sharing in this reenactment, this retelling, this remembering of that greatest story in communion shortly. No wonder then, that right at the heart is this song of love, this chapter of love, this declaration that love is the greatest thing. So straight away, as we've heard it read, this passage reminds us that love isn't simply an emotion or a feeling or some sort of vague, fuzzy sense of well-being. Far from it. The greatest manifestation of God's spirit is love. That love inspired the Father to send his Son. Love inspires the Son to give himself. 
And the Holy Spirit pours out the love of God, the Holy Trinity, into our hearts. Love is the greatest thing. And the love, according to this chapter, is gritty and earthy and real and centre stage in the stuff of life and of family and of church and of neighbours and parenting and marriage. In his great book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis wrote, Don't waste your time bothering whether you love your neighbour. Act as if you do. As soon as you do this, you will find one of the great secrets. When you are behaving as if you loved someone, you will presently come to love them. If you injure someone you dislike, you will find yourself disliking them more. If you do them a good turn, you will find yourself disliking them less. Before we think about what this chapter says, why is it here? Why is it chapter 13, not chapter 1? Obviously, chapter 13 has been numbered after 12 and before 14. But in the context of what Paul is saying, it's sandwiched between this discussion about the body and spiritual gifts and who's got the greatest and which is the most essential and whose gifts are are more than others, and he speaks about actually we're all one body. And in chapter 14, as we heard last time, like two weeks ago, about prophecy of tongues, of worship, yet it's sandwiched right in the middle. It's worth underlining this, that that the supreme spiritual gift that God gives, that girds all together, that underpins each one of them, is the spiritual gift of love. Chapter 12, verse 31, and 13, verse 1. He says, I will show you the most excellent way. In this church, in Corinth, and we of all people whose claim is to be followers of Jesus, to be Christians, that we must embody and reflect something, at least, of the essential character and nature of God, who is love. So in the sequence of these chapters, love is very much in the middle between the gifts of the Spirit and this service, this ministry in the world. And Paul says love is the most excellent way. Without love, we're simply a clanging, clanging symbol, a hollow vessel. Love is not only the greatest thing, but the most precious. Phil has already made reference to the fact that it's been my birthday. Uh, and I always, as you think about birthdays, you think back. And I remember one of my friends from primary school. She had a passion for amateur, from dramatics and acting. And from time to time, we would get together with other friends and play and hang out, as you do. And she had a dressing-up box. And from time to time, she would appear dressed up in a particular character, all made up in all looking very fancy. And she was kind of over the top. She was flamboyant. And especially when she wore the elaborate jewellery that she had in the box too, and her favourite was this enormous diamond. She told me, as probably a six, seven-year-old, 
that it was the most precious and the most valuable thing in the world. And it certainly looked startling. Of course, I didn't really believe that it was a diamond, even at that age, especially one that size. And why would her parents let her have something so, so valuable that was just thrown back into the box at the end of the day? But she was adamant, and she did look astonishing in it. One day I spoke to my parents about it, perplexed and a little bit jealous, saying, why has she got such an amazing thing? And they told me about costume jewellery, of how it might resemble, it might look like, it might mimic, but actually falls far short. It was underlined for me last summer when I went with a friend into Tiffany's, that expensive jeweller's. My friend was searching for an engagement ring and asked me to accompany him because he thought I clearly had uh, exceptional taste in helping him choose his engagement ring. And of course, we ended up at the diamond ring counter and we narrowed down the search, well, he did, until there was one ring set with this most beautiful diamond that glittered and shone and, and dazzled. I didn't even want to know the price of this thing, but it was worth it for him. My friend chose this beautiful ring to, dis- to demonstrate his love for his bride. And the difference between that and the costume stone was oh so stark, like chalk and cheese. And Paul is contrasting in such a way for the Corinthian church. Love is the greatest and the most precious. The spiritually gifted person can't do without it. We never leave it. We never graduate from love. You see, in Corinth, as we've heard, some were exercising their gifts. And in so doing, because they were so spectacular and so anointed and so uh, demonstrative in it, that it kind of made others feel small, maybe irrelevant, unnecessary. What part do we play? Paul is adamant. Ministry without love results in pride. It's divisive, it distorts, and it's an abuse of power. He says in verse 2 about the, the, the love for and the accumulation of knowledge. Knowledge without love is barren. The writer of Ecclesiastes came to that conclusion himself. Wisdom without love, knowledge without love is poverty stricken. It's like bones without flesh. And indeed, Paul most dramatically states this. Any faith that anything that we do without love is actually worthless. Now, when we speak of love, it's it's seen, the quantity, the quality of our love is seen most clearly by those who know us most closely. From time to time I read Christian biographies of great heroes of faith and they inspire me and challenge me and provoke me. And yet so often in the narrative, the story that's recounted in biographies, I often wonder what it was like for people who were close to them, who lived with them day by day, up close, personal, not just perceiving them from the platform. Faith without love is worth nothing. How were they? as a mother or father, as a parent. Paul goes on and says, even those who are most generous, in verse 3, if it's done without love, 
It's like costume jewelry. It's not the real thing. It's not precious. And it's not long-lasting. Astonishingly, in Corinth, where they sought after experience and deeper things of the Lord, and in a culture which, which prided itself in philosophy and wealth and trade, he says it's not what we know that matters. It's not how gifted we are that matters. It's not even what we do that matters. It's what we are that is crucial and critical. And if we believe that, it will make and result in some deep changes in our lives. Christian writer uh, St. Bernard of, of Clairvaux said, What is the highest, most exalted act of intelligent life? And the answer he gave is this. It is to love. Love seeks no cause, no end, no reward beyond itself. I love because I love. I love that I may love. So how does this love show? It shows as the life of Jesus. That as you read through these nitty-gritty, these earthy, these real aspects, these facets of this beautiful, precious diamond of love, the genuine article, every one of them applies to Jesus. Jesus defines them. And in doing so, Paul is holding up Jesus as a lens or a mirror against the failings that are apparent in this supposedly spiritual, thriving church in Corinth. They were claiming that they were following the higher and the very spiritual ways. And yet Paul calls them back to Jesus, calls us back to Jesus, and shows them the way of love, the servant king. That moment in John 13 when, when Jesus washes the disciples' feet, he says he, knowing the, very, uh, of the fullness of what was about to happen, he showed them the extent of his love and washed their feet. Someone described it like this. Love is choosing to do right no matter how you feel. Love is patient. The Corinthians were not in their lawsuits, in their demanding of rights and status. Love is kind. It's generous. The Corinthians weren't. In their gathering, in the agape meal, the love feast, the rich ate the supper, had the principal places, the slaves, the poor arrived late because they were working hard and were less, left at best the scraps. Love is not jealous or envious of other members of the church in their family. Love doesn't parade itself, expecting and needing to be center stage. It serves and notices the unnoticed and the unlovely. Love isn't arrogant or proud. It doesn't trade on spiritual experiences or celebrity status or who has the most followers. Love doesn't dig in the bin of shame. It covers over sin, not raking them up. Love is unselfish. Love is not irritable. Love is not moody and doesn't brood over wrongs. Love always rejoices in the truth and celebrates good. Love can put up with everything. 
loneliness, lack of encouragement, opposition. Love believes the best about people, not the worst. I'm sure many of you have heard of the person called Elie Wiesel, a renowned Jewish theologian and prolific author. In his book, All, Runs, All Rivers Run to the Sea, he tells his family's story, living in Hungary during the dark days of the Second World War. His family were waiting for their time to come for the Nazis to arrive at their door and take them to labor and concentration camps. He tells about, in the midst of that dark time, a peasant woman by the name of Maria. He said Maria was almost like a member of the family. She was a Christian. And during those early years of war, she continued to visit them. But eventually, non-Jews were no longer allowed to enter into the ghettos where the Jewish community lived. It didn't deter Maria. She found her way through the barbed wire and she came anyway, bringing the Wiesel's fruit and vegetables and cheese. And one day she knocked on the door and she told them there was a cabin that she had up in the hills and she wanted to take the children at least, of which Ellie was one of, of them, and hide them before the secret service came. They decided after much debate to stay together as a family. They were deeply moved by the gesture she made. Ellie writes of her, Dear Maria, if other Christians had acted like her, the trains rolling towards the unknown would have been far less crowded. If priests and pastors had raised their voices, if the Vatican had broken its silence, the enemy's hand would not have been so free. But most thought only of themselves. A Jewish home was barely emptied of its inhabitants before they descended like vultures and took everything. I think of Maria often with affection and gratitude, he writes, and with wonder. This simple and educated woman stood taller than the city's intellectuals, the dignitaries and even the clergy. My father had many acquaintances and even friends in the Christian community. Not one of them showed the strength of character of this peasant woman. Of what value was their faith, their education, their social position, if it did not arouse their love? It was a simple and devout Christian woman who saved the town's honour. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and a faith so to remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give everything to the poor, but have not love, I'm nothing. Love experienced now is the firm platform for future hope. Love enjoy, endures whatever comes without turning into cynicism. Love never gives up. Like the love of Jesus on the cross, it stands forever. <laughs>